had a chance earlier this year to spend some time in uh, Paris, France. And it sounds, trust me, way more exotic than it was. Uh, you know, the plane lands, you get on a subway, it takes you to the place where the meetings are, meetings are done, you get back on the subway, you go back to the airport, you lift off, and you go home. That was kind of the nature of the trip. Didn't get a chance to really see the Eiffel Tower or Notre Dame or the Louvre or anything like that. And to make matters worse, I was there in February over February 14th. And guess who wasn't with me? Not exactly the kind of trip I imagined I would take for my very first time to Paris. So why was I there? It was a meeting of leaders from national networks of churches, very much like the one that I serve, Vision Ministries Canada. And uh, there were leaders representing roughly 17, 18 different nations from, the, from around the world gathered together. And we were there to encourage each other. It was a time of kind of peer learning, uh, sharing ideas, swapping stories on how to do what we do better. It was a very rich time with each other. I remember the opening night. We were all gathered together in the hallway. And there are refreshments and beverages out there. And we're going to get a chance to meet each other, introduce ourselves. I saw a gentleman across the hallway. I knew who he was. I, he didn't know me. I went over and I introduced myself. And I knew ahead of time that this was a gentleman who, throughout most of his vocational life, was a high-ranking official in the British government. He wasn't a member of parliament, but he was a civil servant of some notoriety and some influence. So I went over and introduced myself. His response, no joking. He said, oh, you're Mike Stone. He'd heard of me. <laughs> he went on from there to say, you know, I enjoy myself every month opening uh, your organization's newsletter and reading it from front to back. I love the content in there. I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, he loves my writing. He thinks I'm an awesome, an awesome writer because I contribute to this thing every time that we, we produce it. But then he went on from there and it was what caught me next. He says, you know, I am somewhat surprised. And I said, oh, he said, you're much smaller than I imagined. <laughs> the nerve. In that single greeting, he simultaneously enhanced and diminished any sense of self-importance I might have. It's not just me. The truth be known, I think there is something in every single one of us that longs for the world just to pause long enough to look in our direction and to take note of how awesome and how wonderful we happen to be. All of us long for that. We want people to notice us. It was a, uh, it was a great man who said, and I wrote this down, I haven't written my own epitaph yet and I'm not sure I should. Whatever it is, I hope it will be simple and that it will point people not to me, but to the one I have served. Let me read that again. I haven't written my own epitaph yet, and I'm not sure I should. Whatever it is, I hope it will be simple, and that it will point people not to me, but to the one I have served. You know who said that? I'll give you a hint. We bid farewell to this man earlier this year. Who left this age and passed into the world to come? Quite a well-known person, a Christian. Say it louder. Billy Graham. Billy Graham 
was a great man. Now, I know for some of you that he symbolically represents maybe the aspects of conservative evangelical faith that doesn't light you up the most. You're not into transactional uh, salvation or conversion. Set that aside just for a second. Here is a man who dined with heads of states. He was a man who was sought after by roughly half a dozen U.S. presidents for his spiritual counsel during times of great need. Here's a man who traveled the world and filled concert halls and football stadiums with hundreds and thousands of people. And he's a man who seemed to be used by God to transform the lives of other individuals. I've been to the Billy Graham Museum in Wheaton, Illinois, and there I have read on the wall firsthand testimonies of individuals who went to one of those events, bowed the knee, opened their lives, acknowledged their brokenness, let Jesus into their lives, and went on from there to see their whole being whole, healed and restored. And some of these stories are fantastic to listen to the way that these people from all over the world were used by God to do powerful things in the lives of other people. Billy Graham is a man whose notoriety outstripped that of most of his contemporaries. He's a man whose spiritual tenacity and whose largely unblemished character caused the world to pause just for a second and to turn in his direction and say, now there is true greatness. But he's also a man who very early in his public ministry days realized that unless he could get over himself, unless he could learn to check his ego at the door, there's a very good chance that he would not be able to be used in the hands of God. He would have no significant kingdom impact during his days on this planet. And he was a man who learned to do that very thing early in his life, get over himself. He learned to do the very thing that many of us struggle with. The very thing that many of us haven't even begun to struggle with. We haven't tried. And I wonder if at times our absorption with self is the very thing that keeps us from being used in a greater way, a more enhanced way. In the hands of God. Along with 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4, Romans 12 is the third passage that offers us some great teaching on spiritual gifts, what they're all about, how they should be used. But I think as we look at this third passage, Romans chapter 12 this morning, and we're going to look at verses 3 to 9 together, I think we'll discover that a close, through a close and a careful reading, we will discover that Paul, and I actually should say God here through Paul, is not primarily concerned with the ways that you and I might be uniquely equipped for ministry. The primary concern of the passage is this invitation to live a life of generosity. A life of outflowing for the well-being of other people. Let's listen to and read this text together. It's Romans chapter 12, verses 13, or verses 3 down to 13. It begins at verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each one just of each of us has one body and many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. 
We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with the faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. It's a great text. A great calling. A great invitation to live life a certain way. The Apostle Paul was aware of human tendencies. He knew as well as anyone that a fixation on or a preoccupation with our particular gifting could easily lead to an inflated sense of self. And so before he does any teaching on on the spiritual gifts, explaining what they are or how they're to be used, he starts by issuing a big don't. Don't look at your particular skill, your particular competency, and think you're the cat's meow or the bee's knees. Who says that anymore? You are not the bomb. You are not all that because of that gift. If you're looking at your gift that way, you have got it all wrong. And then Paul says, I want you to be sober in your judgment. As you look at yourself, I want you to be sound. I want you to be reasonable. I want you to be accurate in your thinking, in your self-evaluation. Any opinion that you have of yourself, let it emerge from your faith. From that deep conviction that all we have in this world, that all that we are in this life, flows to us out of the mercies of God. That ability you have, it is not primarily a skill. It is not primarily a competency. It's not that you're talented. It is first and foremost a gift from on high that has come to us, that has been given to us. It flows out of the grace of God. And I love the way that Peterson, in his translation, ends this part of the passage. He says, listen to this, the only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and by what he does for us. Not by what we are and what we do for him. One more time. A great translation, paraphrase if you prefer, Peterson In the message, the only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and by what he does for us, not by what we are and what we do for him. There is clearly a movement in this passage. A shift from a focus on self to a focus on the other. And I love the journey that the Apostle Paul takes us on to help us understand this. He does several things. The first thing he does is model what humility is all about the very humility that he's alluding to when he calls us to be sober in our thinking about ourselves. In verse 3, he provides this introduction to the exhortation he's going to leave them with. 
And in this introduction, he alludes to his own apostolic office. He alludes, alludes to his own ability to teach. And he really concludes about both of them that they are gifts deeply rooted in the grace of God. And it's as if Paul then goes on to say to those that are listening, to his readers, to his audience, he's basically saying this authority that I have amongst you, this capacity I have to instruct you in a persuasive way, I didn't grow that. I didn't fabricate it. I didn't forge it. I didn't earn it. It came to me only because God gave it to me. I can't be proud about it in any way. It's just like the gifts God has given you. They are from him. There's no way that you can be arrogant about that. In fact, how dare any of us be proud about something that finds its origin not in ourselves, but in someone else. It's foolishness to a certain degree. So the first thing Paul does is he, he models humility for us, even with this exhortation he's given. The second thing Paul does in this passage is he illustrates his main thought by using the metaphor of the human body. This fellowship, this spiritual fellowship that we enjoy here, this community of Jesus of which we all partake in, of which Jesus is at the center of, Paul says this about the fellowship, using the illustration of the body. He says, the body is one. He makes a statement about its unity. The second thing he says is, though it is one, there are many members with different functioning. Not everybody functions the same way. So now he's making a statement about diversity. Diversity within that unity. But he goes on from there to say, and while there is diversity of functioning, each member, every single one of us, belongs to the other members, which is a statement about mutuality. And I think there's two wonderful implications to flow out of this. There's probably lots of implications, but two for our purposes this morning. The first is this. If you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, I have wonderful news for you. You are endowed with a spirit-charged, a spirit-energized ability to bless other people. And if you haven't been using it so far, what are you waiting for? Let's get on with it. Especially during this time of year, September, when churches are always getting people to sign up for activities and initiatives and programs. But not just the on-center stage stuff. There's an invitation here to use this gift or gifts that God has given us offstage in the informal relationships of life. Discern whatever your gift is. Talk to other people about it. But make sure you're using it to bless other people. That's one of the implications. But the second implication is this. What can be said of you is also true of other people around you. Like, look around here this morning. You have a gift, but so do to all the other fellow followers of Jesus, which means a generous life is not exclusively about just using your gift to bless other people. It also involves the idea of creating space for others, carving out opportunity for others, supporting each other as they go to use their gifts to serve, each, uh, to serve other people because we belong to each other. We desperately need each other. It is a case of symbiosis. Within the community of faith, there is no room for envy, for looking at the other and saying, I want what that person has. God has given you something for effectiveness. There is no room for rivalry. There is no room for competitiveness. We all belong 
to each other. In fact, the proper functioning of your gift is always dependent on the proper functioning of other people's gifts. Try not living generously, and in the long run, it will hamper your own ability to live well. Third thing Paul does in this passage is he gives a list, gives us a list of various gifts, but in doing so, he describes them in such a way. He leaves with us this description of the gifts that emphasizes not the important importance of the one who is serving, but rather the well-being of the one that is being served. And in this list, he mentions seven things. Let me read them for you quickly. Uh, The gift of prophecy, the gift of serving, the gift of teaching, the gift of encouragement, the gift of giving, the gift of leading, the gift of mercy. Now, I don't think Paul is being exhaustive in his listening here. I think this list is exemplary. There are other gifts along the way, but what I think is important for us to notice is that the nature of the gift, the essence of the gift, and the manner in which Paul invites us to use them is a clear reminder that the functioning of our gifts is not about ourselves, it's about the other person. I don't have time to go through all seven. I'd like to kind of illustrate with a couple of these. Think of the word prophecy for a second, or the gift of prophecy. When Paul invites us to prophesy, he says to do so by faith. And what is faith again? Faith is the deep conviction that that gift, first of all, comes from God. He is the author. He's the giver. But beyond that, it is also the conviction that that ability is spirit-empowered. It is supernatural in nature. It is not just another human skill. And thirdly, the faith in this case is always the deep conviction that in the use of that gift, somebody else's life can be transformed. The gift is from God, it's empowered by God, and it's this deep belief that as I use it, I can enhance or better or help, to re, uh, help establish some vitality in the other person's life. The gift is always about the other and not the one that is using it. In this passage, he also talks about the gift of encouragement, a word that finds its root meaning in a Latin term for the word heart. In other words, to encourage another person means to enhearten that person or to instill in them a sense of courage or to instill in them a sense of confidence, which I find rather ironic when you look back over the last 20, 30 years of teaching on gifts in congregational life, at least in the West, because always, not always, but quite often, in our teaching on gifts, the emphasis is building the confidence of the person who has the gifts. And here we have this reminder that the confidence we're talking about with these gifts is a confidence in the life of the other one. Encourage them. Another one here. He encourages us to give and to do so generously, which means we need to do so freely with open hands and open head. It is the call to give in simplicity. And by simplicity, Paul here means with Compassion. When you give to another person, you don't give out of ambition. You don't give with a hidden agenda. You don't give with ulterior motives. Your giving to another person is never under the guise of what goes around comes around. If I'm nice here, hopefully it will come back to me. You're not giving hoping to get something. You're giving because that person has need and you have the ability to meet that need. Either the resources or the know-how. That's why you give. It's about the other person. And one more. Let me illustrate with one more here. The gift of leadership, 
Which, if there's any gift that tempts us, to, tempts us to think about the person who possesses the gift rather than the recipients, it may in fact be the gift of leadership. Because leaders often stand out from the rest. They are noticed. And with the gift of leadership comes or conjures up ideas of influence, perhaps power, perhaps control. But I love the definition of this term. It literally means, leadership in this case, to stand before the other. And when I say that, I don't mean to stand in prominence or priority before the other person or to stand in first place. Rather, it's this idea. It's one who takes the risk to step out in boldness from the group, not to impress the group, but to model for them, to live life in such a way that it shows them how to live. It charts a course for them. It carves a path for them that they might find it easier to follow. The gift is never about the possessor of the gift. It is always about the other person. Listen to the very essence of the gifts and how Paul invites us to use them. And it is an invitation to fix our attention, not on our own greatness, but on the needs of other people. I had a chance last summer, not this summer that we just passed through, the previous summer, so 18, 16 months or so ago, to hear Sam Medcalf speak. Uh, I and our organization belong to uh, a Church Planters Leaders Fellowship, which twice a year gather, gathers denominational executives and church planning directors from across North America. And the people that gather in that room represent roughly 75% of the church planning that goes on. It's a little more than a day. It's, the agenda's packed really tight. It's a great time of peer learning. Medcalf got up and he was speaking for a while. We're learning about stuff that they're doing their ministry, church resources, you know, Christian resources, ministries. But right in the middle of his instruction, right in the middle of talking, he broke. He went on a tangent for a second, but it was powerful for me. Right out of the blue, he says, almost off topic, what's all this talk about countries that are closed to the gospel? There's no such thing. There's absolutely no country on the face of the planet where the gates are shut, the doors are closed, and you can't get in to tell people about Jesus. He said, if you're interested, you and your organization, people that are gathered in the room today, if you're interested in going to a certain country to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to demonstrate, to herald the kingdom, then I can get you into any country in the world. Pregnant pause. I just might not be able to get you out. hit me like a ton of bricks. I got thinking about it, and I thought, that is the crux of it all for every single one of us. When it comes to using our time, our calendars, our resources, our abilities, our gifts from God, our very lives, we move towards the opportunity when there's a chance to give ourselves an advantage, to... Um, to improve our brand, to draw people's attention maybe to ourselves. But we often tend to shrink back when there's nothing in it for us or when there's a chance that we might experience some harm. You know what our problem is? We love ourselves more than we love the very people that God invites us to use our gifts to serve. Call it spiritual narcissism if you want. Of the three passages in the New Testament, that Paul uses to teach about spiritual gifts, their nature, and how to use them. Perhaps the most extensive is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a long passage full of details on gifts. Anybody remember what Paul talks about in the next passage? What's 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about? Love, yeah. 
Yeah, we know that because we go to enough weddings. We've heard it used in wedding ceremonies. We even have a nickname for it. It's called the love chapter. And just as Paul there, following his teaching on gifts, wants to talk about love, we should not be surprised to find him doing the very same thing in this passage. He finishes his verse on the gifts, and before he wraps up his thoughts, in verses 9 to 13, he talks about love. And he mentions love several times. And the reason he's focusing on love's love is because he knows of all people that a generous life might start with humility, but it will only be sustained. It will only be fueled by the degree to which we love other people. So he finishes off with this thought about love. He says a couple things about love in the passage. The first thing he says is that it should be sincere. A literal translation would be, it should be a hypocritical. Our love for others should be without hypocrisy, without pretense. In your love, you should never be two-faced. As we find opportunities to love each other in this context, in this fellowship that we call Forest View, we should never, ever, ever play at it, but we should go deep with the opportunity to love each other. And when we do so, let's make sure we're never faking it. Let's make sure we're real and we're genuine in our love for each other. Paul also says in these verses towards the end that love will be the very thing that holds us together. Love is the thing that enables us to stay devoted to each other, which is a word that, I keep saying little, but I'm trying to unpack some words for you. The word devoted means stick to. The word devoted means to be glued to the other. Paul here says love is the thing that will allow devotion to each other to flourish. But a particular type of love, he uses two words. The first one is philodelphia. What do you think that word means? What type of love is that? Yeah, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's an easy one, city of brotherly love. The love of family. And you know, all know what it is to belong to a family. At Christmas time, we're seated with that great big table. And down at the end is the strange cousin. Down at the other end is the weird uncle. There is always a place at the table. Why? Because we're family. We're always willing to accept and to endure and to help the foibles and the weird stuff about the other people in our family. Family love. The other word he uses is philostorge. One not as well known, but it is the love of sentiment. The love of strong affection. Paul here is saying these are the two things that during both good times and difficult times will keep us together. In his last reference to love in this passage, you may not even catch. It's in the final verse of the section that we read, verse 13. In the phrase, practice hospitality. Where's the word love in that? Practice hospitality. This, my friends, may be one of the great word pictures of the whole New Testament. When you translate the word hospitality, do you know what it means? This is awesome. Anyone? Can I have another amen? <laughs> and another. The dog is more responsive. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Do you know how practice hospitality, you know the word hospitality, how it translates literally? Get it ready. Love of stranger. Love for or of stranger which is radically different than what most of us mean when we refer to hospitality. That's mostly about inviting our best, closest friends over, laying out the fanciest spread, 
and providing the tastiest food so that we can impress them, maybe even one-up them because we were at their place last time and it's one of these things. (laughs) Here we find perhaps the epitome of what it is to live a generous life, to be open to, to be fully welcoming of, to fully embrace, think about it, someone you don't even know. All illustrations Paul's providing here. A life of generosity. I've often been moved by the story of Mother Teresa receiving her Nobel Peace Prize. When she landed, when her plane landed on the tarmac in Oslo uh, in 1979, the tarmac was full of snow, like quite deeply. And the officials that were accompanying her looked at her and said, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble because all she had on was sandals and no coat to wear. So quickly, they made arrangements for fancy fur boots and a fancy fur coat, to which she said, I'm not taking them. I made a vow years and years and years ago to live my life in solidarity with the poor. The poor don't have fancy boots and they don't have fancy coats. I'm not taking one either. She refused because she cared about the poor, a vow that she made. Now, I think they argued with her and talked some sense into her, and they got rid of the sandals and put something on her feet that covered because there was snow out on the tarmac. She heard as she landed and kind of proceeded to the ceremonies that there was a great big fancy banquet that was going to be held in her honor. She said to them, take the 3,000 pounds that had been set aside for that banquet, the equivalent of somewhere between 25 and 30,000 Canadian dollars in today's terms. Take, Take that money and give it to the poor. They need it way more than I need a big fancy banquet. So they did. But they stayed steadfast in having a fancy ceremony for her, at which they handed the award. Now, when you get an award as fancy as the Nobel Peace Prize, the best thing to do, like if you're ever in that spot, okay, I'm giving some heads up warning here. You walk up, you smile, you nod a lot, You shake hands, you say thank you over and over again, you get your award and you go sit down. You don't step out of queue. They had just changed, just liberalized the laws on abortion in that country. So Mother Teresa gets her award, steps up to the mic, and she calls out all the dignitaries, all the officials in the room, and she challenged them to use their office and their influence to speak for those who can't speak for themselves, to fight for the rights of the unborn. Perhaps the best part of the story is uh, her exiting the event. It is told she went to the coat room, got her coat, and left her Nobel Peace Prize behind on the shelf. Friends, if I win the Nobel Peace Prize, I'm going to hug that thing and hang on to it like it's one of my children, okay? (laughs) She leaves the Nobel Peace Prize behind because it didn't matter to her that much. But when she arrived home in her country, returned to the city, returned to her particular village, a little boy came to her. And said, Mama, I heard that you won a very important, prestigious award. Is that true? She says, is this. He says, I don't have much for you, but I want you to have this. And he took a little bowl of rice, just a small, dirty bowl of plain, old, dry rice, and gave it to her. And she took that bowl, put it on her night table, where it remained for a very, very long time. Don't miss the juxtaposition. Leave your Nobel Peace Prize in the closet. Forget about it. Hang on to what many of us consider a little worthless bowl of rice. Why? 
because she doesn't care about notoriety. She doesn't care about importance. She doesn't care about what her opportunities or her gifts or her service do for her own fame. She only cares about the well-being of others, people who have need and need to be served. And she did everything she could to use the gifts and opportunities that God gave her to serve those people. Let me leave you with this quote that was written in the newspaper. This is in Afterposten, a Norwegian journal. They said this about her. How good it is to experience the world press spellbound by a real star with real glitter. A star without a wig, painted face, fake eyelashes, mink and diamonds, without theatrical gestures and airs. Her only thought is how to use her Nobel Peace Prize in the best way possible to help the poorest of the world. Oh God, help us. Help us in the matters that we've been reflecting on and thinking about and announcing this morning. Words are cheap, God. Obedience and behavior is what you long for. Pray that you would extend to us mercy for our addiction to self, our concern about image and impressing, proving our brand. God, I pray that you'd break our hearts for the people that you place us in front of. New friends, longtime friends, people who have needs, gaps, hurts, and wounds in their lives. God, would you help us to become obsessed about those things, knowing that you love them deeply. Would you break the grip that the evil one has on our hearts? A grip in which he constantly lures us back into this self-infatuation. God, even this week as we step out of here, it might even be today, as we find ourselves in a situation where we have an opportunity to use the abilities, the skills, the competencies, the gifts, Father, that come from you. Give us courage and boldness to step into the situation every time. To do it for the well-being of the other. And in the end, our hope and prayer is that you will get the fame and the glory and the recognition from it, God. We pray this in Jesus' name, looking for your help and your mercy. Amen.